0: It's another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether that be live over at Joy620 or you're listening to the podcast at InvestingHope.com, Google Play, iTunes, PodBeam, wherever podcasts are found. You can tell Alexa to play it. You can tell Spotify, whatever you want to do. You can find this show where we talk about life and abortion and the things that are going on around the country, around the globe. And so uh, we have a lot to talk about today. There are some court cases coming up. There's some... Uh, some concerns, some, some nervousness, some anxiety when it comes to what the judges may decide there in Washington, D.C. And so we're going to touch on a couple, uh, articles and then I'll expand, uh, from there. But I want to start with one written by Josh Hammer. Uh, he's a great follow on social media. Uh, uh, you know, just, uh, very knowledgeable about what's going on. And, and the article is entitled, it's over at Newsweek. It's entitled, The End. Let's see, in the abortion exceptionalism double standard. And, uh, here's what he says. He says, there are rules for most cases, and then, then there are rules for abortion cases. Began a dissent of U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit Judge Thapar in case, in a case last month. The majority reveals that abortion exceptionalism knows no bounds, he added. Thapar's allusion to the peculiar rules and procedures that characterize Modern litigation surrounding the peculiar institution of on-demand abortion is especially apt as the U.S. Supreme Court prepares for its expedited November 1st hearing in U.S. versus Texas. Now, that happened uh, last week. That case pertaining to the Lone Star State recently enacted fetal heartbeat bill uh, has attracted outsized attention. The media has obsessed over this uh, procedurally novel manner in which the pro-life statute operates. But the untold story is the special treatment afforded abortion defenders. As the media has reported and misreported ad nauseum, the Texas Heartbeat Act expressly strips Texas government officials of the ability to enforce the state's own law, instead relying upon private citizen watchdogs for enforcement. The media's ire has partially focused on Jonathan Mitchell, the conservative attorney who was SB 8's lead architect. As a mid-September Uh, New York Times article accurately noted much of the groundwork for this bill was laid out for all to see in Mitchell's 2008 law review or 2018 law review article, the writ of erasure fallacy, which explains, quote, the federal judiciary has no authority to alter or annul a statute. The power of judicial review is more limited. It allows a court to decline to enforce a statute and to enjoin the executive from enforcing that statute, end quote. The Supreme Court's majority in its September 1st decision adopted Mitchell's argument, writing, Federal courts enjoy the power to enjoin individuals tasked with enforcing laws, not the laws themselves. Do, uh, let's see, from a doctrine standpoint, this is well settled and unexceptional. What is ex- exceptional is less a creatively designed piece of pro-life legislation, but the entirety of abortion litigation itself. Not incidentally, those invariable procedural quirks and oddities always tend to favor liberalized abortion access. First, as we most most recently saw in 2020, June Medical Services versus Russo, the court allows an extremely liberal third party standing standard in abortion cases that it does not extend to virtually any other type of litigation affecting the invocation of a constitutional or, in the case of abortion, a purported constitutional right. As Justice Clarence Thomas noted in dissent, he said this under a proper understanding of Article three, which establishes the federal judiciary, abortion clinic plaintiffs lack standing to invoke the Supreme Court's jurisdiction for the simple and intuitive reason that the underlying abortion right is not the clinics to vindicate. The court does have a test permitting extremely limited third parties to invoke injured constitutional rights. But as Justice Alito demonstrated in his own June Medical Service dissent, abortion advocates plainly failed that test. Unfortunately, as Thomas wrote in his 2016 dissent in Whole Women's Health v. Hellerstedt, the court has a habit of applying different rules to different constitutional rights, especially the putative uh, putative rights to abortion. Second, the mere fact that the court so dramatically expedited consideration of the U.S. versus Texas litigation as part of its so-called rocket docket, it is itself anomalous and telling. The November 1st oral argument in Texas will take place a mere two weeks after General Merrick Garland's Justice Department requested court intervention for litigation litigation involving the alleged infrim- infringement of view if any other constitutional rights or rights would the court feel emboldened to act this swiftly that's the thing so just to pause for a second i know this is a lot of legal words but but what what hammer is saying here is the court is expediting and looking at cases that have to do with abortion would they do the same about other issues <clears throat> well no and and There's no precedent for it, but when it comes to abortion, they take these things up quickly. Why? Because it's a golden calf, and that's what concerns us, even conservatives, because we're like, hey, the court is dominated by conservatives at the moment, it seems, and yet we're still moving things forward and, and doing the bidding of the abortion industry, and so we'll see what that looks like. The article continues, the last time a court case moved at this speed was Bush versus Gore. That says something. That's all the way back to 2000. The court is apparently willing to throw out all its normal customs and rules pertaining to writs of, uh, let's see, uh, pertaining to writs, agreeing to hear a case in precisely two instances, a contested presidential election on the one hand, or the alleged infringement of the progressive left's foremost pagan sacrament abortion on the other. Third, there is the broader overarching arrogance of the Justice Department suit in Texas, namely, that it seeks to quote uh, Mitchell Court's brief to permit the United States to obtain injunctive or uh, relief against the state of Texas, state court judges, state court clerks, other state officials, or all private parties to prohibit Senate Bill 8 from being enforced. Legally aside, the federal government argument is that as chief vindicator of all constitutional rights or, quote, rights, It has the unique ability to forestall all relevant actors in Texas from enforcing Texans' duly enacted statute. The Justice Department suit fatal problem is simple. As the court maintained in the September 1st order, a federal court in our constitutional order simply does not act as a roving commission capable of enjoining the entire enforcement of a statute. Rather, a court can merely enjoin specific individuals tasked with enforcing a statute. Here, private citizens bring lawsuits under SB8, but the Justice Department sued the state of Texas. Hence, the problem. That's why this law is so important and so uh, crafty, is because it 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 takes the power away from government officials. It's up to citizens to sue and go into litigation uh, to stop abortion, not government officials. Yet again, abortion defenders want exceptional legal treatment they want to be able to enjoin sb8 first even though doing so requires ignoring a mountain of settled legal doctrine of course the real reason they are nervous is because roe v way itself is on the chopping block this court term especially in the dobbs versus jackson's women health organization case arising out of mississippi a law like sb8 wouldn't have a chilling effect if the left were confident in a strong constitutional defense of roe and dobbs but they're not confident they're scared in a just world, Texas would prevail 9-0 to zero in Texas. Thankfully for pro-life advocates, a mere 5-4 outcome would be sufficient to start rolling back decades of misguided abortion exceptionalism jurisprudence. And so I know that was a lot of uh, legal jargon and, and kind of getting the weeds of things. But I wanted to put that out there because we've talked on this show multiple times over the past few months about how abortion is the golden calf. Right? It's the idol. It is the religion for many progressives in this country. They see that as the right that trumps all rights. And so when, when there's a, a law that comes out that, that attacks, that, that puts its sights on abortion, they get riled up. And the unfortunate part is they have success. And so this law in Texas, which takes out all the government officials in the state of Texas to, to enforce it, the abortion industry, the, the White House, the administration, are suing Texas. And so it'd be one thing if it was just, uh, say, a Planned Parenthood. It'd be one thing if it was just NARAL, but it's not. It's the Department of Justice. It's Merrick Garland. And so it's it's the the Biden administration leading the charge, and then the court takes the case, and they're in the process. And I'm going to talk about here in a second some concerns conservatives have because of of the way things were done on that first day, or, or during the hearings that happened last week. You see, this is why it's frustrating, is because they call it a constitutional right, and and many constitutional scholars say yeah they uh, the case in 1973 for roe v wade was a was a train wreck it wasn't so much that uh that the constitution gives a right to abortion it was hey we need to make this work so we're going to go look for it we're going to make the constitution give a right to the abortion even though the constitution currently says nothing about that we're going we're gonna to find it. So when people tell you we have a constitutional right to abortion, go read the Constitution. It, it, it's nowhere to be found. Nowhere to be found. You know, what, what, what our Constitution and Declaration say is you have a uh, a right to pursue happiness. You have a right to life. That's why when we were evacuating folks from Afghanistan. And and many of those women were pregnant. When they had their baby in America. Their baby was a citizen of the United States of America. You see, so so that, that baby was a citizen. When a woman is carrying a baby. In the United States of America, that baby, in my view, is a citizen while in the womb. Yeah. So our politicians should be standing for them as well. But instead, they're using the courts to do their bidding. And this is why it's been an uphill battle for so long. It's because when the administration tells the court to jump, the court says how high. And that's what we're seeing here out of Texas. They don't know what to do with the law out of Texas because it's unique. And there's legal scholars that say the court has no no grounds for stepping in here because it's not about the government officials. It's about citizens Filing suit against abortion providers, not against women having babies or, or trying to have abortions, but against those that would provide the abortion. And they don't know what to do. So what do they do? Oh, we need the courts to step in. you got to fix this. Now, there is a, a brighter side to this. That since this bill has been enacted, babies have been saved in Texas. Less abortions have occurred. But but at some point I mean, you know, we've we've said this for years and years and years, but but at some point the, the history books are going to to say that a segment of our population and the courts worked in conjunction with each other to make sure that babies could could have their life ended in the womb. In the same way that when I read the history of, uh, of of this country and slavery, and it boggles my mind that we allowed that to happen, or I read the history of this country and it boggles my mind that we, we segregated schools, that we segregated restaurants and buses and water fountains, and that, that we allowed that to happen, But we corrected it. But in the same way that my kids, my grandkids, my great grandkids are going to read in the history books that. That our society and our culture celebrated the ending of life in the womb. Celebrated it. I mean, what are we doing? So we'll see how it all shakes out. But what we've learned over the last week or so is what we've known. Abortion is the golden calf. It's a religion for folks. And the religion is, I have a right to end the life of another. And, and that's a religion straight from hell. We'll be back. Science. As we continue the conversation, one thing that, that we need to, to talk about is, and, and I've read you know th- different things over the last few few weeks and months, and we talked about it here uh, of of where I think the the decision will will fall down at uh, the Supreme Court level. But there are some folks that that are concerned, and, and there's uh, there's two judges in particular that that we we hope go one direction, but we really don't know with their latest uh, comments and and writings, and that is Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett. Now I, I thought Amy Coney Barrett was a shoe in. That you know that she's uh, you know a Catholic mom, uh, mother of seven. I thought well, we don't have to worry about uh, where she stands on this issue. But but there's been some concerning discussions, and and there's a piece over at the Federalist that that they titled. Uh, and I think rightly so. If Kavanaugh and Barrett betray pro-lifers, we must blow up the conservative legal movement. Now, what do they mean by that? What they mean by that is something we talked about multiple times on this show and in other places. Is is my generation has been told. I remember back in 2000. I remember even going back further. Hey, you know, you got to vote for this particular presidential candidate because... The Supreme Court may be up for grabs and we want to get Republican or conservative uh, justices in there. And so if a, if a Supreme Court position comes open, uh, if you're a conservative, you want a conservative in the White House to nominate that justice. If you're a liberal, you want a liberal in the White House to nominate that justice. And so what we've seen over the last uh, decade or so is we've seen some opportunity there. And so President Trump had three justices. Three that he was able to replace. One of those being Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so what, during President Trump's term, he nominated and had confirmed Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. If you'll remember, Neil Gorsuch's confirmation, pretty simple, straightforward, not a lot of fuss. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation, an absolute train wreck. Uh, they brought in yearbooks from his high school. They brought in all kinds of stuff. Uh, and he still was confirmed. And then Amy Coney Barrett came in with, with very little fanfare, not a lot of pushback. Uh, although they, they did, you know, one of the senators did say the dogma lives loud in her. And, uh, she kind of wore that as a badge of honor. But the concern is, not necessarily where we think they fall personally, but what are they going to do in, in the face of some of these court cases? Uh, so, so this is where we have to look. Uh, just this week, Barrett and Kavanaugh embraced the theory of judicial supremacy out of step with a more conservative tradition when they both appeared openly skeptical of the construction of the Texas abortion law, which bans the practice after six weeks of pregnancy. All of this should make the guts of conservatives churn in the lead-up to next month's oral arguments in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health, the biggest abortion case the court has heard in decades. The author of this uh, this article, um, Rachel Bovard, uh, she said this: "She said I've written about the importance of this case before. While abortion cases post Roe have tricked uh, up to the ticked up to the Supreme Court on rare occasions." None have presented the clear and fundamental question that Dobbs now brings, whether or not bans on pre-viability elective abortions violate the Constitution. In ruling on this case, the court will have the opportunity to overturn both Roe and Casey, which together form the architecture for a constitutional entitlement to abortion. It is not an understatement to say this is the case pro-life conservatives have been waiting for. It's why many in our movement willingly shed blood in the vicious fight for the confirmations of Kavanaugh, Barrett, and Gorsuch. The prospect of a majority conservative court was a key reason millions of Republicans turned out to vote for Donald Trump. Yes. That is why. That was the, that was what we were sold. Hey, vote for this guy. You'll get your justices in. And then boom, we'll, we'll overturn Roe. But here's the thing. Here's the thing we got to remember. Roe v. Wade was given to us by, quote-unquote, conservative judges. Do you understand that? The majority of the court was conservative back during Roe v. Wade. We had a chance to overturn it in 1992. Conservative judges chose not to. So I've always been skeptical about, hey, give us the White House, we'll give you the courts. Because the history doesn't represent that. But I digress. So the trepidation conservatives now feel about where Kavanaugh and Barrett may end up on Dobbs is both unexpected and unwelcome. There is a distinct possibility that Barrett, Kavanaugh, and possibly the George W. Bush-appointed Chief Justice John Roberts will find a way to hedge, to quote both sides, their way into a narrow and distorted opinion in a case that, as Mississippi Attorney General's Lynn Fitch has laid out, demands a clear imperative with regard to the dubious constitutional standing of Roe and Casey. To be clear, with the 6-3 allegedly conservative court, anything less than a decision ringing with clarity on the dismissal, uh, the dismissal of Roe and Casey should be viewed as a failure. Despite the goalpost shifting going on in establishment Republican legal circles, there is no, quote, long game here. Although some will argue that any ruling that chips away at Casey is good enough, Roe is the case that created the constitutional entitlement. It is the architecture upon which the legal abortion structure is built. Both Roe and Casey must go. And that's right. That's why pro-lifers came together, voted for a particular candidate. That's why pro-lifers and conservatives got together and looked at the list that President Trump put out and said, this is the list I will pick from. And we applauded. And so they have an opportunity coming up. What will they do with that opportunity? Will they take, will they, will they be originalist? Will they have the guts to say this is what the constitution says and allows in 1973 Roe v. Wade case and Casey in 1992 are not constitutional? Will they have the guts to do that? As Notre Dame law professor Cher, let's see, Sharif Gergis argued recently, quote, upholding the Mississippi law without overruling the court's previous abortion cases would lack support in any legal source. Send even more abortion cases to the court and curb the justices' ability to overrule Roe down the road. End quote. We have played the long game for the last 50 years. And we have finally arrived at the decision point with a case that demands a clear accounting of rulings that Justice Thomas has criticized as, quote, creating the right to abortion out of a whole cloth, end quote. Here to litigate, it is a Supreme Court that doesn't again require just one more justice, but is finally positioned to address the question. If the outcome of Dobbs is indeed a hedge that splits the court's conservatives, or to put it more bluntly, If the conservative legal movement has failed to produce Supreme Court justices who are comfortable overturning two outrageously constitutional defective rulings on abortion, we will be left to justifiably wonder what the whole project has been for. That we are even in the position to openly speculate where Kavanaugh, Barrett, and Roberts might end up on such a foundational conservative legal question should itself prompt reflection. Not only about the expanded role the court now plays in our self-government, but also about how we select our judicial masters. The court has become an extension of our politics, and that is just as much a choice from Republicans as it has been from Democrats. It wasn't supposed to be this way. The American founders envisioned a judiciary that was largely subject to muscular legislation, legislature, not the branch that ruled it. But this inversion is what the modern Congress has come to prefer. The profound questions of our social order, immigration policy, Policy questions of human dignity and the sanctity of life, of marriage, religious liberty, and civil rights are no longer determined by the legislature, but by unelected and thus unaccountable jurists. As a case study in Congressional Preference for Judicial Decision-Making view the collective shrug that resounded from Republicans in Congress when Gorsuch tossed sex and gender identity into the 1965 Civil Rights Act in 2020. Or consider the lack of comprehensive effort among congressional Republicans to challenge President Joe Biden's sweeping and unprecedented uh, mandates. Now that the Supreme Court is reportedly or repeatedly sidestepped, we'll continue when we come back. But there is a, some cause for concern with the way some of these justices are behaving and acting out, and we'll talk about that when we come back. I said to him. So as we continue the conversation, boy, is that true? You can't always get what you want. But we're looking at the cases that are facing the Supreme Court uh, coming up now. Part of this is the pro-life movement is always in defense mode, right? And so, so for part of this, it's like we can't even get our hopes up because anytime we've gotten our hopes up, they've been dashed and, and we've been uh, beat by the courts. So some of this. Anger and, and, and concern and anxiety is because we don't know what to do. Okay. Yeah. The courts should be in our favor. Uh, President Trump appointed three justices and, and then John Roberts is Bush's appointment. You have Alito and Clarence Thomas, very strong conservatives. So we should be good, but we can't allow ourselves to be good because we read and we listen to what some of the justices say and we go, well, hold on. That's not. That doesn't sound like an originalist. That doesn't sound like somebody that has the guts to, to make a change. And, and part of this is we've allowed all of our justices to, to be part of the political process. Now they're politicians. right? They're, we no longer see them as jurists. We see them as conservative or progressive or, or the like. And so we have to, at some point, see what they're going to do. And so as we lead up to that, we're going to have articles, we're going to have opinions, we're going to, we're going to talk about it because we don't know. And so uh, this article continues. It says, uh, also consider the limp non-response from congressional Republicans to the court upholding President Obama's clear abuse of rulemaking in creating the illegal amnesty program known as the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Add the one pro-life vote Republican majorities allow each year in lieu of an energized campaign to persuade, expose, defund, and actively legislate on one of their key platform issues. Republicans in the Senate, in particular, will huff about not having 60 votes as a reason none of these policies would be possible. But such a position ignores the actual work of lawmaking. Using a majority to vote relentlessly on priority issues, messaging constantly toward a specific policy end, and creating a voting record unfavorable to the opposition. The last legislative pro-life victory, the ban on partial birth abortion in 2003, invoked nearly all of these methods. Today, it's a rarity for the Senate, regardless of party control, to show up for work more than two and a half days a week. In 2018, this largely implicit preference to outsource policymaking to the courts became explicit when the then-Senate then Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell decided to forego using the Senate GOP majority to try and legislate, but rather to confirm as many judges as possible. There were pros and cons to this choice, but the clear upshot of asking judges to make every consequential determination about how the country will be ruled is that judges become effectively our politicians, unelected politicians with lifetime appointments, but politicians nonetheless. Yet on the right, we do not vet them as such, not even close. And this author has addressed the contradictory and self-defeating aspects of this position before, saying expecting the judges to rule on matters of policy and politics while simultaneously refusing to vet them for their beliefs in those matters is both contradictory and unsustainable. A party cannot, on one hand, expect judges to issue the correct policy decrees, while on the other hand, studiously fail to take any steps to guarantee that outcome. While the left has not been shy about their practice of nominating stone-cold activists, the right has always held to the norm that judges should be interpreters of the text in front of them, rather than ideologues who use the bench to invent new values-driven legal theories that impose their own views on the country. This is, of course, the prudent and correct standard of judging and of judicial interpretation writ large, but it fails to account for the intentional shift of expectations that have taken place from the, quote, judge as textualist interpreter, or interpreter, end quote, to our current conception of the judge as legislator. In many ways, the right's ideological position of applying the normative standard of restrained judicial vetting seems out of step with the current post-normative reality of how the country is actually ruled. The left accounted for this shift long ago, and it is why they never suffer a surprise decision from their nominees. They already know exactly where their judges stand on every issue, minuscule to monumental. But since the right is now a regular and active participant in placing the burden of self-government onto the judiciary, it would seem as though we should do more to ensure that the people we place in those positions will actually uphold our interest. For starters, this should mean that the, uh, the Federalist Society requires more questions, not less. We should applaud, not condemn, Republican senators who do their jobs and vigorously question the nominees of both the right and the left, and who hold exacting standards for nominees or constitutional questions. Also, the conservative movement as a whole, not just a select few, should be welcome to offer input into the selection process for nominations to key judicial positions. If Congress is going to continue passing off the questions of self-government to the court, that is, if they are going to force judges into making choices that are inherently political, then perhaps... The cleanest response is to simply put the politicians on the court. Among Republicans in the Senate, there are the three former Senate uh, Supreme Court clerks, Mike Lee, Ted Cruz, and Josh Hawley. If another vacancy presents itself under Republican administration, perhaps it's time we skip the backroom Federalist Society coronation of some preselected circuit court judge and simply elevate a senator to the Supreme Court. Now, some would say, well, we can't do that. That's politicizing the courts. Guess what, folks? They've been politicizing the courts for years. Now, would a Mike Lee, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley face an uphill battle when it comes to confirmation? Yeah, absolutely. In the same way Brett Kavanaugh did. But at least with Mike Lee, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, we know what we're getting. It's not going to be a, I don't know, maybe they'll be great. If they're going to be asked about Roe v. Wade, guess what they're going to say? It's unconstitutional, and, and if I get an opportunity, I will vote to overturn it. They're not going to get this mushy, middle-of-the-road, I don't know, precedent says, and I can't say now until I see a court case. No, we're going to know what we're getting. At least senators have a record of votes we can examine. Unlike Kavanaugh, Barrett, and even Gorsuch, uh, there will be mercifully few surprises about where they actually stand. The conservative movement cannot afford bitter surprises, at least not when the Supreme Court has taken for itself, with the willing encouragement of the legislature, a dual role of interpreting the law as well as making it. Now, I know today has been a lot of legal jargon, legalese, and looking at the courts, but the reason I want to do that is because we can't just go blindly and say, yeah, I'm going to vote for this person because they're going to give us a conservative court. That, that, That may not be the case. May not be the case. But if you look at the progressive justices that have been put on the court, Ruth Bader Ginsburg never made a surprise vote. She, anything that she ever wrote or did on the court never surprised the progressives because they knew what they were getting with her. But countless conservative justices have surprised conservatives. Whether it be with, with marriage Justice Roberts going the other way, whether it be with Roe v. Wade, whether it be with Casey in 1992, religious liberty cases concerning mandates, concerning abortion uh, with the Catholic Church, concerning nuns. We've seen conservative judges go in directions that, that leave us completely shocked. Or conservative judges looking back and going, well, I mean, I may not agree, but precedent has been set. So Roe v. Wade has to continue on. No, no, that's nonsense. If there was a case back in the day that was decided but was unconstitutional, the court should overturn that. I don't care about precedent. If precedent has been set and it's wrong, then you overturn it. I mean, what are we doing for a long time? Slavery was the precedent, but we overturned it for a long time. Segregation was the precedent, but we overturned it. We made a change for a long time. The precedent was women could not vote. But guess what? We overturned it. And the list goes on and on and on for a long time. African-Americans in this country were, were worth less than a, than a white person. You see, we did a lot of things that might have been precedent, that might have been okay, but we look back and go, that that was a bad decision. We're going to overturn that. And I'm afraid where we are now is we have politicians that, that love to rant and rave and campaign But when the rubber meets the road, they don't want to really make the hard decision, so they leave that to the court. That's what happens in Washington. Now when you get to the state legislatures, you you have state legislators, senators, and and, uh, reps doing the hard things. Putting their money where their mouth is. Saying, hey, we're going to do everything to defund Planned Parenthood, and then they do it. We're going to do everything to see abortion ended in our state, and then they do it. And then when, when a state like Texas does what it does, Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice attack them. And then what do they do? They say, we don't care what that state said. We're going to take it to the courts. We're going to let the courts decide. If you'll remember, and I talked about this a few weeks ago, marriage was on the ballot in California years ago. And, and all the progressives were saying, we got it on the ballot. The people are going to vote and they're going to, they're going to fall in line with us. And all you all you crazy people that believe marriage is between one man and one woman, y'all are going to see what the people want. We're going to put it on the ballot to vote. In one of the most progressive states in the union, it was put on the ballot. And guess what? The people of California said, no, marriage is between one man and one woman. And then what did they do? They took it to the courts. And the court said, not just for California, but for the entire union, marriage can be whatever that's what the court did so they weren't trying to legislate in the state of California they didn't really want the people to vote they only wanted the people to vote if the people voting were going to vote their way but if we don't get our way we want to take it to the courts and so now the courts have become the legislative branch so we should applaud our state legislatures and our governors for doing the right thing, for legislating and then we should hold our justices accountable We should hold our senators and congressmen that are going to Washington, D.C. accountable for what they say on the campaign trail. We'll talk more when we come back. As we finish up today, you know, hopefully it's been this was in a fruitful conversation, at least to give you a a glimpse into what's happening behind the curtain. And 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 look, I, I still believe we have the votes in the Supreme Court. To overturn Roe. I I do. I believe we have the votes. Now, do I believe Justice Roberts will vote the right way? And I've said this before. I think he's going to go, he's going to take stock of where he thinks the votes are going to go. And if his vote is the deciding vote, it's going to go in the direction against conservatives. If his vote is not the deciding vote and Roe is going to be overturned, but it's not going to be based on his deciding vote, I think he goes with those that want to end Roe because he wants to be on the winning team. Now, now what we have to understand is if they overturn Roe, we are going to see uh, a mess. That's why it's going to take guts. That's why it's going to take effort. If Roe is overturned, they better up security for the justices that voted to overturn it. I mean, already you're seeing with with just the the infrastructure bill that was passed the other day, you saw Joe Manchin, who's a Democrat, uh, being accosted as he's going to his car. They're blocking his car. While he he has a houseboat and and they're yelling at him on the houseboat, Uh, you saw... Cinema, Senator Cinema from Arizona, just trying to go to the bathroom and people follow her in the bathroom, fussing and yelling at her about her vote. If, if they overturn Roe, you're gonna see videos of people like Clarence Thomas, Barrett, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch. Because it's a religion. It's the golden calf. If abortion goes away, they're gonna have you believe That women are going to go back into alleys, use coat hangers. None of that's true. None of that ever happened on a large scale ever. But that's what they put out in front of you. They make you think we need safe abortions. Well, guess what, folks? Every successful abortion ends a heartbeat. There is no safe abortion. Not for the child. You're going to hear other arguments of stacking the courts. Well, you know, we just need to stack the courts. We need to get the court, the amount of members of our court that on our side. So we're just going to stack them. And guess what? If, they, if we go down that path right now, Joe Biden is president. He'll stack the court with his side. The next time a Republican is president, they're going to stack the court with their side. And we'll have an unlimited amount of court, uh, of justices. That's not the direction we need to go. And constitutional law, legal scholars on both sides of the aisle agree with that. Only politicians believe we should stack the court, again, because they're turning the court into the legislative branch. And that's not how the founder founders uh, planned it. So I believe we have the votes. And again, this, this goes back to people not completely understanding what Roe v. Wade is. If it's overturned, it goes back to the state's. So the blue progressive states that, that have abortion on demand all the way up to nine months, that will continue. And the conservative states that are passing laws to limit abortion, they'll be able to do that. And frankly, there's going to be a lot of states, even conservative ones, that they won't outright ban abortion altogether. They're going to have caveats in there, life of the mother, which is a very broad definition. There's going to be a number of things in there. But we've created this problem as a political class The political class in this country has created this problem Because they have kicked the can down the road and said Yeah, we're not going to legislate, we're going to let the courts legislate That's not how it was supposed to be done But here we are And because politics has kind of become a sport now We're waiting for game day Right. December one is the day we're waiting on that day. So as we lead up to that day, you're going to hear folks like me and others that are walking through what it looks like if they do this, if they do that, if they say this, if they say that, what is it going to what's going to happen? Because all of us become like news junkies. If you listen to sports radio, that's what happens all leading up to the game. And then if you have a bye week, it's like, oh, we don't even know what to talk about. And then if you have summertime where there's no sports, it's like, ah, oh, we don't know what to talk about. We're just going to talk about the upcoming season. That's what's going to be happening over the next month when it comes to this case. We're going to be figuring out, do, do we think, do we think they're going to own our side? Are they going to vote like they, like we think they're going to vote? Are they going to make a decision like we think they're going to make? Are they going to be in favor? Are they going to do what they, they told us they were going to do? We don't know. We don't know. But regardless of what happens, be praying for the justices. Because they have some hard decisions coming up. And regardless of what those decisions uh, are, are, there's going to be an outcry of people that are angry or very happy. And so we'll see. We'll talk more about it next week. Thanks.